Well, as the kids are being dismissed this morning, uh, they're going to be learning uh, that all things indeed are lawful, but not all things uh, are beneficial. And so we know that uh, that trick-or-treat is right around the corner, and they're going to come home with uh, arms full of candy. Uh, and just because they can eat all that candy does not mean that they should eat all that candy. Much is the same way in our walk with Christ. There are all things that are lawful, but not all things uh, are necessarily permissible uh, or necessarily best. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, we're going to continue. We're going to continue our battle with Goliath. Last week we we got right up until the battle. We uh, David. We were introduced to David. David was introduced to Goliath. We saw Goliath's taunt and Goliath's mocking of Israel and the God of Israel. We also saw uh, uh, David and his standing up and saying, "What's going on? How will this? How will Israel allow this uncircumcised Philistine continue to mock the God of Israel?" Uh, but we did not get into the battle, and so today uh, we will battle Goliath. So we're going to be reading verses 34 through verses 54 in 1 Samuel chapter 7. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took the lamb from the flock. And I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet upon his head and clothed him with his armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off, and he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, and even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came and approached David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with handsome appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistine, the dead bodies of the army of the Philistine, this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And this happened when the Philistine rose and came down and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it, and it struck the Philistine in the forehead. 
And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his own sword and drew out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley of the gates of Ekron to the slain. And the slain Philistines lay among the way to Sharaim, even to Gath and Ekron. And the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who delivers. We thank you that you are the God who uses weakness. You are the God who does not need the strength of this world, Lord, but rather you would rather use brokenness and weakness to demonstrate your great glory. Lord, may this morning, may we see our own weakness. And may we embrace our weakness that the power of Christ may be demonstrated through us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his word. We thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray this morning that as you leave, that you will have a greater appreciation of your own weaknesses, your own fallacies, your own faults, and that you may be able to embrace those as you allow the power of Christ to work in you and through you. I want us to begin, and and, and we're going to back up for just a few moments into the story, and I want us to notice that before David ever steps out onto the battlefield to face Goliath, that he has already faced, he has already done battle with the contempt of Goliath and with the mind of Goliath. If we remember, as David shows up to the battlefield, he's confronted by his older brother. And he's confronted by his older brother, and his older brother asks him, he says, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Why why aren't you at home keeping watch over the sheep like you were supposed to do? It is is very much a a typical older brother, younger brother scene. I, being the older brother, uh, am very familiar with this. Uh, my, My younger brother... Uh, was always following me around. We would, you know, we would. Whenever I was younger in the neighborhood, we would we would get out on the on our bikes and we would go to our friend's house, and my brother would be right there tagging along. And I would turn around and be like, "What are you doing? Why are you here?" And I would come home and I would be mad, and I would ask my mom. I would say, "Why does he have to follow me everywhere he go? Everywhere I go, why is he always around?" And she says, "Well, well, he's your younger brother, and he wants to be just like you." And I said, "I don't care. I don't want him around." And so this is very much, this is very much the, the sense, this is very much the sense that Eliab has for David. Now, we also need to remember what took place in 1 Samuel chapter 16. That David was anointed and Eliab was not. Here was Eliab, the firstborn. Samuel, the prophet of God, comes to Jesse and he says, one of your sons is going to be king. One of your sons is going to receive the anointing from God to be the king of Israel. And there is Eliab, the firstborn, tall, strong, smart, clever. He has all of the attributes that one would want in a king. And yet he is passed over for David, the baby, who's out in the field keeping watch over the flock. 
This is, this is the contempt. This is, this is the contempt that David faces first. And, and the world will tell us, church, the world will tell us that you're not good enough. The world will tell us that you're not strong enough. The world will tell you that, that there's no way that you can accomplish what, what you intend to accomplish. The world will tell us that there's no way that the church is going to be successful in fulfilling the Great Commission. The world will tell us that there is no way that you can make a difference in eternity. The world will tell us that there's too much evil in this world. And the mind of the world, the contempt of this world, based upon everything that they see, based upon all of the physical and all of the the external measures, would be right. But what they don't know is that our God is a living God. And He does not see as man sees, as we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He does not look at the external metrics. He does not look at, at, at the external appearances, but He looks at the heart. And that is what we see, that, that before David ever steps out onto the field, he has to do battle with the contempt of Goliath demonstrated through Eliab. And then, as David makes this statement that, that the same way that God delivered me from the hand of the lion and the bear, God will deliver me from the hand of this uncircumcised Philistine. Saul, the king, places all of his eggs in this one basket and said, okay, good luck. But then what does Saul do? He says, come here, David, let me, let me give you my armor. Let me place upon your head my helmet. Let me place upon you my breastplate. Let me give you my sword. Let me give you my, my armor to protect you. And arguably, the armor that David wears weighs as much as he does. It probably weighs 70 to 80 pounds with the helmet and the shield and the, 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 the breastplate and the sword and the sheath. probably weighs 70 to 80 pounds. David was probably 12 or 13 year old boy. He probably didn't weigh much more than that himself. And so here is this, this young, young man walking around with this, this armor on. And Saul said, if you're going to do battle with Goliath, you have to wear this armor. David does battle with the mind of Goliath, with the mind of this world. He's already done battle with the contempt of this world. Now he does battle with the mind of this world. And there is a way of thinking that that the, the Scripture says there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death and destruction. It tells us in James that there is a wisdom that is of this world, and that wisdom that is of this world is not from God. There is a wisdom of this world that says that there is a way to do things and that there is a, there is a, a, a way to be successful in this world. We hear things like, you know, it's okay. It's okay to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married because after all, how will you know if you're compatible unless you live with one another before you're married? There's a way that seems right to man. There's the wisdom that is of this world. You know, the, we also hear things in this world that says, you know what, if, 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 if God made it, then, then, then it's good for us. There, there's no way that, no reason that the government should, should outlaw uh, uh, marijuana. The government should outlaw. There are things in this society that, that the wisdom of this world says that, that, that it, is, it is right. But the scripture tells us that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And the scripture also tells us that God has given us authority over our life to govern us, to to. to lead us and to direct us and we should place ourselves under the submission of that authority 
There's a way that seems right. And as David puts on this armor, he says, the thinking of this world is skewed. I cannot defeat this giant wearing your armor. I cannot defeat this giant acting like you. Church, you will not be able to reach your your co-workers, your friends, you will never be able to reach, your, reach the world with the gospel by acting like the world. Before David ever does battle with Goliath, on the battlefield, he has to do battle with the contempt of Goliath. He has to do battle with the mind of Goliath. He has to do battle with the contempt of this world and the mind of this world before he ever does battle with the strength of this world. And then David steps onto the battlefield. And he does so in faith, knowing that, that God will deliver him. And he does so, the faith, that, the faith that David has before he steps onto the battlefield is a faith that looks backward to inform the future. Well, let's understand this. It is a faith looking backward to inform that which is in front of him. History informs the future. We can see that God was faithful in the past, therefore God will be faithful in the future. We can look back in our own lives and see how God has interacted and God has interceded in our lives. We can look back over the testimony of Scripture. We can look back over the history of redemption. And we can see how God has been faithful in the past and therefore we know that God will be faithful in the future. But I want us to understand that David looks back and he does so with accuracy. Notice what he says. Go to the text, if you will. Verse 37. Now David has just said, whenever the lion showed up and whenever the bear showed up and took a lamb from the flock, I pursued the lamb. I struck the lion. I struck the bear and removed the lamb from the lion's mouth. I have done these things. But notice what it says in verse 37. He says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David looks back with accuracy. We have a tendency, I believe, that whenever God moves in our lives, we have a tendency to to look back and we we have a tendency to say, Look at how great I did. Look how wonderful I was. Look how how eloquent, look how charismatic, look how, look how great I was under these difficult circumstances. Failing to realize that it was God who was working in us and God who was working through us. We have a tendency to look back and see things not as they were, but as we would like them to be. And I believe that David, one of the important aspects of David's faith is that he looks back upon his circumstances and he does so with accuracy. He looks back and saying that I had no power and no ability to be able to slay the lion or slay the bear, but it was God who delivered them into my hand. It was God who guided the stone. It was God who was was working in me and through me. And we must understand that our success in this world and in this life is by the hand of the Almighty God. Why do you have the job that you have? Why do you have the family that you have? Why do you have the blessings that you have? Is it because you're good at what you do, or is it because the favor of God has rested upon you? I can promise you, in my case, it is not because of me. It is only because of the grace of God in my life. 
So David understands God's action. And he looks back and he looks back with accuracy. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and I think we oftentimes we read verse 13 but we fail to remember what verse 12 says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you but such is common to man and God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with every temptation provides a way of escape so that you may be able to endure. But we need to understand verse 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. David understood that it was not David, that it was not my strength, it was not my ability, but it was God who was delivering. It was God who was working. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So David makes his way to the battlefield. He's taken off his armor. And on his way to the battlefield, the scripture tells us that David stops at the brook and he picks up how many stones? Five. Was this because David was afraid he might miss? David said, well, you know, I've, I've, got, you know, I've got a sling and a stone. He's a long way away. Maybe I'll miss. The scripture tells us David picked up five smooth stones. But I want to point out something to you in, in the ancient Near East tradition that, that many of us are unaware. This, this champion battle uh, from one champion, to a, uh, one champion of an army to another champion of the army was not uncommon. This was oftentimes a way that, that uh, armies and that, that uh, rivaling clans would, would settle their disputes because, after all, an army, if an army fights an army, there are hundreds, thousands that are going to perish. But if a champion fights a champion, there's one man that's going to die. And so logic says, look, this is, this is for the best interest of all parties involved. And so they would often engage in these champion battles. And what would often happen is, is the, as one of the champions fall, another champion, usually the relative or the younger sibling or the older sibling of that champion would step up to take his place. Well, this, the history, extra-biblical history, tells us that Goliath of Gath had four brothers. And so as David was on his way to the battle, he stops and he picks up five stones. Not in case he missed but in case the younger brother or the other siblings of Goliath would have stepped up and said, this is now another battle that you must face. David picks up five stones. Knowing that his past, the deliverance of God in the past is informing his future. That God will deliver him. And he will deliver him not only from Goliath, but from Goliath's four brothers if need be. Because God is a God who is intent on proclaiming His glory and protecting His reputation for all the world to see. I want us to point out, I want to point out to you David's, what, what, what motivated David to engage in this battle. David is, is, shows up on the battlefield and what does he hear? He hears Goliath taunting Israel and the God of Israel. And David's response is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that mocks the living God? That's the first time that David ever speaks in all of Scripture. We see David asking, 
Who is this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine, who mocks the living God? David understood that that the, the taunting and the mocking of Goliath was not that he was mocking Israel. Was not that he was he was talking bad about Saul, and not that he was he was uh, 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 speaking reproach upon the armies of Israel, but that he was mocking the living God. He was mocking the only one true God. And David said, "This this is not okay. This is not okay." We're going to come back to that in just a few moments, but I want us to see. That God often uses the weak and broken to be His vessels for deliverance. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes it like this to the church at Philippi. As he writes this, this book, he's sitting in the prison cell and he says this, He says, more than I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul himself was a Pharisee. Paul himself was an heir, uh, was a descendant of Benjamin. Paul was a very wealthy man. Paul was trained under, under Gamaliel. Paul was, he, he was a man of means. He was a man of, of great stature, of great prestige. And whenever Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, Paul lost everything. He lost his familial ties. When he forsaked Judaism to cling to Christ, he lost his inheritance. He lost his wealth, he lost his influence, he lost his stature, and ultimately he would lose his life. God uses the weak and the broken. God would use an adolescent child to deliver Israel from a Philistine army. In the ancient Near East, a child was... Was looked, was looked upon very lowly. In the ancient world, they did not view children the same way that we view children. Our view of children is, is, is that if, if, if the children, uh, we, we have this idea and we, we play this out in our everyday lives, our world revolves around our kids. Am I right, moms and dads? You know, our kids have a soccer game, a volleyball game, a basketball game, a football game. And so all of a sudden, our lives and our world stop for about 10 to 15 years. And mom and dad, we have no life. We have no social uh, interaction outside of basketball games, soccer games, football games, baseball games, because we are spending our time doing everything and, and we are communicating to our children that, you know what? You are the most important thing in my life, and everything in my life is going to revolve around you. We, we, we will work extra hours so that we can put them in the best schools. We will, we will do everything we can so that we can do the best by our children. And, 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 and hear what I'm saying. That's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I want us to notice 
that it's completely antithetical and different to the way that the ancient world looked. The ancient world, children were to be seen and not heard. Whenever we gather as a family, who eats first? The kids. Now, mainly because we don't want to be disturbed whenever, we're, whenever we sit down and eat, so we feed the kids so that we can feed them and then send them outside and go play. But, but in the ancient world, the adults would eat, and then if there was anything left over, the kids might be able to get some scraps. And this, is, this was something that carried on even through, through the Middle Ages and even through the Industrial Revolution. The, the whole idea of don't throw the baby out with the bathwater came from a tradition that, that whenever you would draw water for a bath, that the husband would bathe, the father would bathe first, and then the mother would bathe, and then all of the children would bathe. And so by the time the last child, the baby, would be bathed, that the water would be so dingy and so dark that you may lose the baby in the bathwater. And so as you throw the bathwater out, you don't want to lose the baby with the bathwater. Why? It wasn't because, it wasn't because of anything other than, than the reality that children were, were not seen with the same value and the same dignity that adults were. And God uses this child who would have been derided and would have been looked down upon to be the deliverer for all of Israel. This is not the first time God would use the weak and God would use the broken for deliverance. We see the story of Queen Esther, a woman. Women were not allowed to speak in public. Women were not allowed to address men in public, let alone a king. And God would use Queen Esther, God would use Queen Esther to deliver Israel from genocide. Whenever Jesus compiles His his disciples, He compiles Matthew, a tax collector. He compiles Simon, a zealot, somebody in in, in, in a rebellious sect of society. He compiles a bunch of uneducated fishermen. He compiles the weak, the broken, to be the, the foundation and the, the catalyst for the Great Commission. That's God's M.O. That's what He does. He uses the weak and the broken to do great and mighty things. What I want us to understand, church, is that God is much more concerned about your availability than He is your ability. You say, well, preacher, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not smart. I don't know the Scripture. I don't know the Bible chapter and verse. I don't know how to, how to share my faith. I don't know how to do all these things. I, I'm, I'm weak. I'm, I'm, I don't have all of these abilities. The Scripture tells us that God doesn't need your ability. He is God. He is able to do with, with little what, what, what we cannot do with much. God does not need our ability. He simply desires our availability. Goliath ridicules and mocks the God of Israel. I want us to understand something, church. God is able to defend Himself. God does not need you and I to do battle for Him. We see this in the story of 1 Samuel earlier, whenever the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it and they sat it before the the Philistine God Dagon. Remember what happened as they sat the Ark of the Covenant before the Philistine God Dagon? What happened the next day they showed up? Philistine God Dagon was face down. They set him back up. And they said, well, you know, surely the, the wind must have knocked him over. So they set the, the, the little G God back up before the Ark of the Covenant. And the next day they walk in and the Ark, of the, God, the, the Ark of the Covenant is standing and the Philistine God Dagon is on his face. And this time his arms are removed and his head is removed. 
God is able to defend himself. And God will defend himself. He will defend his honor and he will defend his reputation. And sometimes he will do so through broken and weak vessels. What astonished David was that the Philistines were mocking the living God. Here's the God of all creation. The God who spoke the world into existence. The God who delivered Israel out of the hand of of Egypt and out of the hand of Pharaoh. The God who was with Israel in the wilderness. The God who gave them a cloud by day and a fire by night. The God who gave them manna to eat every morning. The God who brought them into the promised land. The God who who delivered them from the... uh, uh, delivered the city of Jericho into their hands and the walls came tumbling down. The God who caused the sun to stand still in order that they may defeat the Amalekites. This is the God that Israel serves. And the Philistines are mocking this living God. And the Israelites are sitting around letting him. It blew David's mind. It said, it said, he looked around, he looked at his older brothers, he looked at Saul, he looked at the armies of Israel and said, are you going to allow this, this, this uncircumcised Philistines to mock the God of Israel? I believe that there are times in our society and our culture today Where the God, the living God, is being mocked. And the church is standing around like Saul and Eliab and the armies of Israel and allowing the living God to be mocked. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. I want to point out something to you. This story is not about David and it's not about Goliath. The Hebrew word harap appears six times in the first 12 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 17. That word is a word that that is translated reproach or rebuke or mock. Six times in the first 12 verses the author uses this word reproach or mock or taunt, saying that that Goliath, that the Philistines are mocking and are, are reproaching the God of Israel. And when David shows up, the first words out of his mouth is, are you going to allow this uncircumcised Philistines mock the God of Israel? The living God. David seems concerned because there's no one who will stand up to fight for the honor and the glory of our God. I want to point out something to us, church. God is intimately concerned with His glory. The Scripture tells us in, when God gives the Ten Commandments, That he is a jealous God. And he will not share his glory. The first two commandments deal with God's concern with his own glory and with his own name. The first three commandments, it says, For thou shalt have no other gods before me, because I am the only God who is worthy. I am the only God who is is God. I am the only God who who has the, the, 
the glory and, and the ability to be God. And then we see in the second commandment, he says, thou shalt not make for yourself graven images because I am a jealous God. And we see the third commandment, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. God is concerned with his name. He's concerned with his glory. He's concerned with his reputation. He's concerned so much with his glory and with his reputation that, that in John chapter 1, God had looked all throughout the history of redemption and said that there has been nothing that has adequately represented my glory up until now. And so I am going to come down to earth and I am going to demonstrate my glory for you so that you can see and be a witness of my glory. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, All things that were made were made by Him. Nothing that was made was made apart from Him. And we get to John 14, John 1, 14, and we see who this Word was. And the Word became flesh. And we be, and, and dwelt among us. I want us to look at the language. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the very eminence, He's the very radiance of the glory of God. God was so concerned with His glory that up until, up, until, up until Jesus came to earth that there had been nothing that had accurately represented His glory that He sent Jesus to come down to say, this is my glory. This is the glory of God, full of grace and truth. But I want to point out, even in the glory of God, Jesus demonstrated The suffering servant. Why? Because God desires to use weakness to demonstrate strength. Because in doing so, He receives glory. If God were to send Jesus as a military might, as a warrior, as a general, to lead the armies of Israel against the armies of Rome, then history would read, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the warrior, Jesus the King delivered Israel from the bondage of Rome. But that's not God's desire. God's desire was not to deliver them by military strength. God's desire was not to deliver them by the sword or the spear or the javelin. God's desire was to deliver them, not from their physical bondage, but from their spiritual bondage. Because God understands that our greatest need is not in and of this world, that our greatest need is outside of this world. That we stand condemned. We stand in bondage to sin. We stand condemned to death. And our greatest need is not for a military deliverance. Our greatest need is for Jesus to die for our sin and deliver us that we might have eternal life. And as Jesus came, He had all of the radiance of the glory of God. And He humbled Himself. And through weakness, demonstrated power. So my challenge to you this morning, church, is that we'll recognize our weakness. Recognize that, you know what? As a husband, I'm not what I ought to be. As a wife, I'm not what I ought to be. As a mother, 
As a father, I'm not what I ought to be. And we'll cry out to God and we'll say, God, may you use my weakness to demonstrate your strength. We cry out to God and say, God, will you use your Holy Spirit in my life, dwell within me, work within me, in order that I may demonstrate your glory and your grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Where are you weak, church? Where are you insufficient? And if we're honest with ourselves, right now the list is really long. May God use your weakness to demonstrate His strength. May His grace be perfect for you. Will you pray with me? God, we thank You that You gave us a beautiful picture of David. Demonstrating weakness to show Your glory and show Your grace. There are those of here who are weak. We're not the husband, the father. We're not the wife, the mother that You have called us to be. Lord, but we acknowledge that. We recognize that we are weak and we are broken and we need Your Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. Maybe this morning you realize for the very first time that you're a sinner. Maybe you realize for the very first time that you need Christ. That His death, His burial, and His resurrection paid for your eternity. That's you. I want to invite you to come. Maybe God has convicted you about striving to striving in your old strength to be better. God has realized, He's demonstrated through His Holy Spirit that the only way for you to be better is for you to quit striving and allow God to work in you and through you, to acknowledge your weaknesses and trust in Him. Maybe God is calling you to be a part of what we're doing right here at Redeemer. Maybe God's calling you to obedience by baptism. Whatever it is the Lord is speaking to your heart, May today be the day of obedience. It's in Christ's name we pray.